Good morning, everybody. Morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the elders here at GRC. Um, I'll be have the privilege of sharing the Word of God with you today. Um, if you've been following along um, in our series here at GRC, we're in the book of Ezra, and um, I was just telling this to Steve Holgerheide earlier this morning. I don't know if you've read Ezra, like at the end. We're up to chapter 9 now. Chapter 9 and 10 are really difficult uh, texts to preach from, so uh, I won't be preaching on it. I'll leave that to the professionals, um, and I'll just say that I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks. Um, today, I want to look at a familiar story from the book of John, and um, I want to talk about this phrase that Jesus uses in it, this phrase called born again. And what I hope you walk away with today is a general understanding. I say general because the topic is so broad, but a general, good general understanding of what it means to be born again and how you might know whether or not you're born again. And here's why I think it's such an important topic. And I've shared this um, illustration uh, a few times in the past. I remember watching an episode of Top Chef a while back. And Top Chef, for those of you guys who don't know, um, it's a cooking competition, like many shows these days, where a contestant will cook something up, and they'll bring it before the judges for some honest feedback. And uh, in an early season, this was years ago, uh, one contestant was uh, particularly cocky. Um, and he was very confident, and he gave his dish to one of the judges, and the judge didn't like it, and he basically let him have it. You know, his dish was not good, flavors were off, ingredients didn't come together, presentation wasn't that great, and of course, the, the cocky contestant got offended. Uh, he said, you know, I don't care about your opinion. I know my dish is awesome, right? And then there was that moment of, like, awkward silence, like everyone's like, oh, oh, he just said that to the judge. But then in the right moment, the camera pans right to the judge, and the judge calmly says this. He says, I don't, he says, unfortunately for you, it's my opinion that actually counts, right? And of course, he's right. No matter what the contestant thought of his own dish or thought of his own cooking abilities, it's only the judge's opinion of that dish that counts. It's the judge's opinion that determines whether or not that contestant can stay on the show. And the reason why I mentioned this is that all of us can spend a lifetime working towards a vision for our lives. And like the Top Chef contestant, we can optimize our life decisions and try to, to craft the best lives for ourselves, and we can even enjoy the fruits of our success. But in the final analysis, and this is a human thing, none of us are exempt from this. In the final analysis, we will all pass from this life to the next. It's just a matter of time, and when it's you before God, I want to ask you, how does God really regard you? Right? What does God really think about you? Because no matter who we become or what we achieve, at the end of our lives, he's the judge. Right? It's his opinion of us that counts. And when a holy God who knows all things, who can peer into the depths of our hearts, who knows us better than we know ourselves, how confident do we feel before him? Right? So, Coming to our text, we see a character named Nicodemus come to Jesus. And, you know, John doesn't explicitly tell us why Nicodemus was there. But I wonder if Nicodemus, as we're about to see, um, who is a distinguished, he's a seasoned, and he's a religious man. Um, and though the text doesn't say exactly how old he was, I wonder if he was kind of towards the, the twilight of the prime of his life. And I wonder if he had doubts 
and anxieties about how God regarded him. And maybe that's something we can all connect to regardless of age. If, the, if our lives are the sum of our decisions, as some say, and we go about our lives day by day, how do we know that we're living it right? right? How do we know that in the final analysis, when it's us before God, how God would regard any of us? All right, so if you um, are able, will you stand with me as we look at our text from John 3? We're looking at John chapter one, uh, chapter three, verses one through sixteen. Now there was a Pharisee, a, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him." Jesus replied, "Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again." How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Man, you you may be seated. Um, I have three headings to help us follow along, Um, walking by night, seeing the kingdom, and finally following Jesus. All right, so first point, walking by night. Um, I think it's interesting that in our text, John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that your teacher was come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Right, Nicodemus sounds open, he sounds charitable. He's even respectful. He acknowledges that there's something special about Jesus. But why come by night, right? And some commentators think, you know, maybe it's because Nicodemus didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Pharisees as a whole, they didn't always have the best relationship with Jesus. Jesus often rebuked them. You know, Pharisees didn't like him. They saw him as a threat, right? Maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe he didn't want to be seen um, talking to Jesus. But other commentators believe it's also indicative, perhaps, of a greater truth at play here in the scene. Right, for example, um, biblical scholar D.A. Carson suggests that this phrase by night is likely more than a detail about the time of day. He notes that whenever John talks about the night in the Gospel of John, it's usually a metaphor for a moral and spiritual darkness. I have three examples up here on the slides from John chapter 9. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. In John 11, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And finally, uh, when Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples and friends, decides to betray Jesus, to have him executed on the cross, in John chapter 13, when, when he's having his last supper, in verse 30 it says, So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas Iscariot immediately went out. And there's that detail right after, and it was night. Right? And that was probably the most spiritually dark time in all of human history. Right? And if Carson is right, John is essentially telling us that Nicodemus was in moral and spiritual darkness. Right? And that might come as a surprise to anyone who actually knew Nicodemus at the time. Because the text tells us three important things about him. Right? First, like we mentioned before, he's a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he's not just a nominal Jew. No, he's very religious. He was devoted to his faith. Pharisees memorized tons, large portions of scripture. They memorized large portions of their traditions. They, they prayed for long times. They fasted at least twice a week. They tithe, temp, no, tithing is like giving 10% of not only their income, but everything they received, gifts. Right? And they lived their lives in a way that demonstrated to everybody watching that they took the law of Moses really seriously. Right? So first, he's a Pharisee. Second, we see he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, or the Sanhedrin, as some of us know it. Right? So I read that, and I see that he's someone who's distinguished. He had status in the community among all the other Pharisees who are very religious and moral to begin with, he stood out among his contemporaries, right? So he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, and third and finally, we see in verse 10, Jesus himself acknowledges that Nicodemus is also a teacher in Israel, right? So he's um, religious, he's distinguished, but he's also smart, he's also capable, he's respected. People looked to Nicodemus for instruction and guidance on how they should follow the law, right? So in summary, Nicodemus is devoted to his faith. He's respected in the community. He's smart. He's capable, right? And just, you know, taking that in for a second, right? Isn't this what most of us would like to aspire to in life, right? We're in church, devoted to our faith, respect in the community, smart and capable, right? Isn't this, you know, for parents out there, right? Isn't this what we want for our kids, Right? Excellence in every category that matters. Church life, school life, work life when they get older. And I'll, I'll grant that these aren't bad things in themselves. They can be ways that God legitimately blesses any one of us. But John seems to highlight for us a, very, uh, a reality very specific to Nicodemus' life. That in spite of everything that he achieved, in spite of everything that he was, he was in the darkness. Right, so let's move on to verse 3. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. Right, let me just pause right there. Right, every commentator right, points out that that phrase, kingdom of God, is, it's, it's a phrase used a lot by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't really use that phrase. In fact, I think in chapter 3, it's the only place where it actually says kingdom of God. God. And I think Jesus is using that phrase here intentionally because it meant something to someone like a Jew named Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus would have understood the kingdom of God to mean a time to come sometime in the future, 
a time to come that will be inaugurated by God's Messiah when sin and evil are finally done away with, when all the wrong things in the world are made right, and where the righteous, like Nicodemus, are finally vindicated. Right? And for Nicodemus, entering the kingdom, seeing the kingdom at the end of his life, that would be the ultimate validation that he lived his life right, that I made the right sacrifices, that I'm getting everything I deserve for all the good things that I've done. But of course, here in verse 3, Jesus is not giving Nicodemus a pep talk. Right? Jesus is not affirming him. Jesus isn't telling Nicodemus, oh, you're doing well. You know, just keep on going. Instead, he, he peers into Nicodemus' heart and he gets to the root of the problem. Right? He says, while everyone else sees a moral, capable, successful person on the outside, you are actually in the dark. In your state, you can't even see the kingdom. Right? Jesus lays it out straight up from a divine perspective. Jesus, Nicodemus' religious life, his career, his status in the community meant nothing, nothing in the final analysis. Right? God wasn't impressed by it. Right? There was something seriously lacking in Nicodemus's life that separated him from God. Right? And that brings us to our second point, seeing the kingdom. Right? I'm going to continue in verse 3. It says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Right, and there's that phrase, born again. It, it's a phrase that we um, are probably familiar with if you grew up in contemporary church culture. I think that phrase is even used in politics sometimes um, to describe a certain demographic. Right? But if you heard this phrase for the first time like Nicodemus did, it could sound very strange. And we see in verse 4 that Nicodemus is genuinely puzzled. Right? How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked in verse 4, surely they cannot enter the second time into the mother's womb to be born. Right, I feel like um, the response that Nicodemus gives is the kind of response we would give when someone gives us like critical feedback. Like feedback that's difficult to hear. Like you know, when your boss sits you down and says, you know, you're not exactly producing the results that we expect. Right? Or if you're in a relationship with someone you love and they tell you that, they don't love you anymore. And the relationship's not just not going to work out. Right? If we value our jobs or if we value our relationships, we instinctively say something like this. What do I need to do? I'll change. Well, just, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Because right? intuitively, when people give us difficult feedback, we think we just need to tweak our behavior a bit and everything will be okay. But what Jesus is describing here is completely outrageous. It blows every category in Nicodemus' mind. What Jesus says that Nicodemus needs is, is not like a program that he needs to follow. Or, you know, I read this article um, header around New Year's, you know, seven easy steps to become the best version of yourselves. Right? This is not what Jesus is saying Nicodemus needs. What he needs is literally out of this world. Right? It, it, it's, the, the phrase born again can be translated born from above, right? It's that same line of thought from John chapter 1 where John introduces his gospel when he says that the children of God are children, verse 13, not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, right? So, so Nicodemus is confused, and Jesus goes on. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless God, 
the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and of the spirit. Right? He's trying to clarify for Nicodemus in categories that he might understand. Right? So, you know, every commentator will say here, you know, it says born of the water and spirit. This is not a, a reference to the sacrament of baptism. Right? Most commentators think that what Jesus is thinking about here is probably a reference to a passage like Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel the prophet um, is revealed by God a time in the future when God will gather his people again into the promised land. And in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Theologian John Murray, in looking at these texts, describes this process using the word regeneration. He says in reference to the cleansing water and the new spirits, he says regeneration must negate the past as well as reconstitute for the future. It's a change that needs to happen in us to cleanse us, and it's a change at the same time that needs to give us a new life. But the important thing that Murray emphasizes is that regeneration doesn't start with us. Regeneration is not a program that we can follow. It's not something we can do. It is God who needs to supernaturally intervene in our lives. It is God who needs to cleanse us. It's God who needs to change us. It's God who needs to turn that heart of stone inside and turn it into a heart of flesh. To quote Murray again, God effects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources. That's pretty exhaustive language. All right, so, and if this is true, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, seeing the kingdom, entering the kingdom, having God accept us and approve of us is not a reward for trying to live a good, godly and moral life. You know, many of you know that I work in a large financial services company, and um, in my work, and I'm sure, you know, if you guys work in a corporate setting, um, there's, like, the job to be done on the one hand, and then there's the politics of the job, right? Job to be done and the politics of the job. And here's what I mean. Overall, I enjoy the job to be done, right? I'm a product manager. Um, I work on some pretty cool things that solve real customer problems. I really enjoy the job to be done, right? But then there's also the politics of the job, right? I don't work by myself. I I work on a team, and most of my teammates, by and large, are just as capable, just as experienced, just as hardworking as everyone else. But, and we just went through the cycle. Every year end, there's only so much money in the pot to be distributed among the highest performers. There are only so many promotions that an organization can give so that people can, you know, go up in the ladder, right? And you don't want to feel like you're falling behind your peers. So when I say the politics of the job, it's this aspect of the work where you have this pressure to always posture and distinguish yourself from your teammates, right? It's, it, you have this anxiety to try to, to climb up, hoping that senior management will acknowledge you, right? Select you. Reward you. Jesus is saying, seeing and entering the kingdom is not about us trying to ascend, hoping to reach heaven, hoping that God notices us, 
hoping that God rewards us. No, what does he say? Being born again is, is not an anxious climb at all. In verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Seeing the kingdom, entering the kingdom, is about looking to the one who brought heaven down to us. Right? It's about heaven beating us where we are. It's about looking to Jesus, the Son of Man, who makes the kingdom of God not just a, a future event. He came on this earth to make the kingdom a present reality. And what Nicodemus didn't see was access to the kingdom. Seeing the kingdom was right there in front of him. Right? And that brings us to our final point, following Jesus following Jesus, right? To sum up so far, you know, the first point was walking by night, right? No matter how good or moral or distinguished or respected we are by the world, by nature, we're separated from God and we walk in spiritual and moral darkness, walking by night. Number two, seeing the kingdom. In our condition, the kingdom of God is not something we can try to ascend to, right? To enter into the kingdom, we need to be born again. We need to be born from above, it's Jesus who came down to accomplish the work necessary to cleanse us and to give us a new spirit. And he came down so that the kingdom of God, eternal life, is not just a, a future event. It's something we can access. It's something that we can see today. And so to finish up in our third point, I wonder, you know, as I read this text, you know, I wonder, you know, like just thinking about the life of Nicodemus, I wonder if he ended up becoming a follower of Jesus after this conversation. And my hunch is maybe he did, right? In John chapter 19, you know, after Jesus died, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, they were there to, to take Jesus' body and anoint it, right? That's something Pharisees like Nicodemus typically wouldn't do, right? To touch a dead body. Right? But in chapter 3, uh, we know for sure that Jesus is there in front of him, and Nicodemus is processing. Right? The last we hear from him in this conversation is in verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. Right? So at this point, we don't really know where Nicodemus is. But I think for some of us here today, I think there's a way we can be like Nicodemus in a sense. We can be good and moral people. We can be around Jesus, so to speak. We can come to church. We can sing songs, <clears throat> listen to sermons. We can, be, we can like being around other Christians and, and participating in fellowship. Um, and, you know, and having heard the message of Jesus several times, we can kind of cognitively understand what the scripture is about. We can kind of understand what, who he is and what he's done what it means to be born again. We can understand these things cognitively. And we can even have an emotional response to the gospel. You know, I remember there was a time in my life when I, I would get very emotional reading, um, you know, the, the story of Jesus dying on the cross. And I thought, oh, wow, this must be the work of the Spirit in my heart. But then I realized I cry just as much watching the movie Braveheart <laughs> and seeing Mel Gibson die for freedom. Like, that level of emotion wasn't necessarily a sign that the Spirit was at work in my heart. Although it could be, it could be part of it, right? We can cognitively understand. We can even get emotional about it. Uh, 
But at some point, it's a whole other thing for us to actually step in and live this new life by faith. So what does it look like to, to step in and to respond by faith? I think if God has really changed you, if God has really changed any one of us, we would see the world very differently. We would have radically different values and priorities. It would change how we regard people, how we process pain and suffering, on who we would strive to please. It would change the kind of vision that we have for our lives. We wouldn't measure ourselves against worldly values of success or worldly values of esteem. Instead, you know, what do we have? We have thousands of years of church history. You read through biographies and testimonies or talk to people who really lived a life. People in the name of Jesus can make seemingly irrational life decisions from the perspective of the world. They do things like loving their enemies, truly forgiving others with no strings attached, compromising their own comfort by giving away their wealth so that others can benefit compromising their own safety to serve others, even at the cost of their lives, leaving good jobs to go on missions to a foreign country. Because being born again, once you step into it, once you live that life of faith, has real-life consequences. It's like on the one hand, they've emptied themselves, but on the other, they seem full. There's joy and there's purpose in their lives. And how is that possible? And I think it makes sense that if you're, united, if you're united to Jesus through whom the kingdom comes, your life would model his. And let's look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him believes may have eternal life in him. All right, Moses and the snake, by the way, is a reference to a, uh, a text in Numbers 21. The, the Israelites had grumbled. They're, they're in the wilderness. They left Egypt, they're in the wilderness, they're almost there at the promised land. But they grumbled and they expressed how life would be better without God. Right? So God sent venomous snakes that bit the people and they died. Right? And I like the way Tim Keller really summarizes that the venom represented in their bodies the sin that was killing them in their souls. Right? So God, having mercy on them, tells Moses to make a copper snake. Well, it says bronze snake, but it might be copper, I think. Right? Red snake. Put it up on a pole so that anyone who was bitten simply needed to look up at that snake and they would live. All they had to do was look up and they would live. And Jesus, in a similar way, says he himself needs to be lifted up. Now that phrase, lifted up, commentators say that every time John uses this word, translated lifted up, it has two meanings. For Jesus to be lifted up on the one hand refers to his exaltation to the highest place. And I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 2, now having the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? On the one hand, when the Son of Man is lifted up, it refers to his exaltation. But on the other hand, more to the point of our sermon here today, it also refers to the path that Jesus took to get there, right? The path that caused Jesus out of his love for us to leave the glories of heaven and to come down, to take the form of a servant here on earth, a path that led him to 
empty himself and to become obedient to the point of death, a death that came by being physically lifted up on that cross. For Jesus, the path to exaltation, the path to glory was through the cross. And it was a cross that he was glad to bear. How do I know this? John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in all of human history. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It was for his, out of his love for us. And so for those born again, we live a life as Jesus calls us to live. He says, whoever wants to be my disciples, he must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. That is a life well lived. Now I want